January 1873. Chester came home, the sickness with him. The boy had been over the lake working, but returned to his father at Lumen Smith's house in Heinsburg, where he came down with headache, fever, pains in his arms and legs. The illness spread rapidly. Lumen took sick, as did the younger boys Alman, Cassius, and Albert, and then Frank, the baby, just two years old. Lumen's wife Minerva was already in poor health, an invalid of many years. She was the first to die, succumbing to fever on January 18th. The doctors were useless. Exhaustion, headache, high fever. It could have been anything. Then Chester broke out in a rash. He had sores in his mouth, lesions on his face and body that swelled up hard and fat with pus. Smallpox. The house became a mortuary. Cassius died on January 22nd and Albert on the 23rd. The baby, Frank, died January 28th. Their final resting place is unknown. They were buried, perhaps, in an unmarked plot at the Rhode Island Corner Cemetery, or more likely in a family grave on the Smith property for fear of spreading contagion. Lumen Smith survived. So did Chester and Alman, but the family was broken, and Lumen too. The months passed. The older boys recovered, went off looking for work, and Lumen was left alone with his grief in the house where he'd watched them die. Minerva, Cassius, Albert, Frank. Until the autumn of 1874, when he married Alma Wood. Welcome to these dark mountains. This is In the Barn, the story of Lumen and Alma Smith. Alma Wood was born in 1845 to Harriet Rice and Joseph Wood. Her parents were living in Quebec at the time, just over the border in Clarenceville, but they had returned to Vermont and settled in Burlington by 1861 when Alma married Haman Austin, a Williston farm laborer. She was 16 years old. The couple's first child, a daughter, was born in June of 1862 but died of fits aged 11 days and was never named. Three more children followed, Laura in 1863, Clement in 1865, and Ira in 1870. On the 4th of July, 1871, Heyman loaded a shotgun to fire a salute, but something went wrong and the gun exploded. One hand was mangled beyond saving and amputated at the wrist. 
Heyman survived the surgery and went on to recover, though the pain was surely considerable, and he must have struggled afterward to do farm work. The Austins suffered another tragedy in March of 1872, when their son Ira died, aged 17 months. Alma was pregnant at the time, and gave birth to another son, Joseph, in September of 1872, but the marriage was failing. Heyman became abusive, and Alma sued for divorce, citing intolerable severity. In later years, the newspapers described Alma's reputation locally as but little better than that of a common prostitute, and similarly alleged she was once an inmate of houses of ill fame. This isn't necessarily accurate, but if she did engage in sex work, it might have been during this period, when she was attempting to divorce her abusive husband while supporting herself and the children. It's unknown when she met Lumen Smith, or how, though it may have been through her sister Harriet, who lived not far from Smith's farm. Alma was later described as a slight woman, small and bespectacled, while Lumen would have borne the scars of smallpox. Their pain, perhaps, brought them together. Lumen had lost a wife and three children to disease, while Alma, then 29, had endured an abusive marriage and buried two children of her own. Her divorce went through in October 1874. Heyman didn't contest the suit, and Alma was granted custody of the three children. The next month, she married Lumen Smith in Heinsburg, with their first child, Helen Jane, following in July of 1875, fewer than nine months after the marriage. A new baby, a new beginning. The Smiths relocated to neighboring Williston, where Lumen acquired the life lease of a farm near Essex Junction. Records suggest he left the Heinsberg homestead to his son Chester and settled himself to a farmer's life in Williston. Alma's three children probably accompanied them, at least initially, though Lara soon married and returned to Heinsberg, and Clement moved to Colchester, even as Alma's father Joseph Wood, now in his seventies, moved in to help out round the farm. A second daughter, Bertha, was born to the couple in February of 1878, but the marriage was increasingly volatile, even violent. The Smiths separated at least three times, and Alma later accused Lumen of abuse. He hit her, she said, knocked her down, and what's more, he had taken to carrying a dirk knife, making threats. In the summer of 1879, the Smith family consisted of Lumen and Alma Smith, Joseph Wood, six-year-old Joseph Austin, and the children Helen and Bertha Smith, who were four and one respectively, when Alma left home for the fourth time on August 10th. Lumen forced her to leave, she said, wouldn't allow her to take the children. She boarded in Richmond and dreamed of a life out west, thinking she might go to Lincoln, Nebraska, where she'd been promised a job. She'd need protection, naturally, and for this reason she purchased a small pistol for herself, a seven-shooter. The weeks passed, and Alma found religion, attending a camp meeting in Essex Junction. The seasons changed, the leaves turned pale and sere, and Lumen changed his mind. He wanted her back, he said, 
couldn't do without her. Alma hesitated. She missed the children, God knows, but her husband frightened her, what he might do. She turned to her father for help. Joseph Wood was by reputation a quarrelsome man who previously served two or three years in prison for selling alcohol in violation of the state's prohibition laws. He was apparently quite close to Alma, if not to the rest of his family, and Lumen's conduct infuriated him. Around this time, he was heard to say the man ought to be shot, while on another occasion he stated, Mrs. Smith couldn't get along with her husband, and they had got to get rid of him. He had a plan. Alma should offer to return, but only if Lumen were to relinquish his life lease on the property, signing it over to her. The house would belong to her. Lumen couldn't turn her out again, couldn't separate her from the children. Wood put the plan to Lumen, but he refused. Not surprising, really, but Alma took it hard. On Sunday, October 19th, she visited Lumen's daughter, Susan Phillips, in Heinsberg. According to Susan, Alma was in a state, overwrought in swearing oaths, threatening violence. She showed Susan the revolver, saying, there would be blood shed if Lumen didn't carry his head right. In the end, Lumen relented. He met with Wood to sign over the property, and on October 21st, a Tuesday, Alma returned to Williston. Or maybe it didn't happen that way at all. Because Lumen Smith was adamant there was no abuse but on Alma's part, and that was regular enough. She frequently threatened his life, he said, and deserted him on three occasions prior to August 10, 1879, when she left for a fourth time and refused to take the children. He couldn't cope. His stepson Joseph was six, but the girls were only four and one and needed mothering. He fed them and clothed them and put them to bed, but parenting left little time for work and the weeks were passing the money running short. Meanwhile, Alma was at the camp meeting in Essex Junction, spending days and nights. Her motives, Lumen thought, were rather less than holy, and he assumed she'd gone back to sex work. He hated her, maybe, had reason, but he needed her, and so did the children. He begged her to return. His father-in-law agreed to act as a go-between. Wood spoke with Alma, and afterward put the following proposition to Lumen. Alma would come home, but only if Lumen signed over the farm. The demand was outrageous, unreasonable. He refused. On either October 18th or 20th, Lumen called on state's attorney H.S. Peck at his offices in Burlington. Lumen told Peck of Alma's conduct at the camp meeting and claimed to possess proof of adultery, which was then a crime. Peck believed that Lumen wanted Alma put in prison, but he may only have intended to compel her return by threatening prosecution. Either way, he left disappointed. Peck took no action, and Lumen went home to a farm he couldn't tend, mouths he couldn't feed. He was cornered, being unable to support the children and equally unable to abandon them. He caved 
and agreed to sign over the farm. October 21st, Alma came home in trouble with her. The quarrels continued, two against one, as bad as before or worse, for Lumen was no longer the master of his house. The next day he drove to Heinsberg and didn't return to Williston until evening. Joseph Wood said Lumen was acting crazy, that his face was very red. Lumen denied he'd been drinking, but afterward he apologized to Alma and her father. A fragile peace then, but it didn't last. The next morning, October 23rd, Alma and her father planned to drive to Williston Village, but the wagon was kept in a locked barn to which Lumen alone had the key. The barn was Alma's now. The horse too, she thought. She asked Lumen for the key, but he ignored her, said nothing, then took himself off to Essex Junction on foot. In the junction, he called on C.M. Farron, a local doctor. Lumen told Farron he had signed his life away for the sake of getting his wife back, as he couldn't take care of the little children himself and earn a living. Now he regretted the decision and wanted to sell the horse. Was Farron interested? He was. The men agreed to a sale and Lumen said goodbye. Also that morning, he stopped in to see George Austin, a family friend, who was married to Alma's sister Louisa and was also the younger brother of her first husband, Haman. Lumen confided to George that he planned to leave the farm, that he could not live there any longer. He needed money then, and maybe for this reason he decided to sell the horse, though it's also possible he acted out of spite. He knew there'd be consequences, expected an argument, and was ready for it. He told George he would put Alma and Wood where the dogs would not bite them if they attempted to interfere. Then he walked home. Early afternoon, not yet two o'clock. His stepson Joseph was away from home, probably at school, while Bertha was in the house with her mother. Lumen didn't go inside. His little girl, Helen, ran out to meet him, and they proceeded to the barn together, talking of this or that, then turning at the sound of footsteps, Joseph Wood coming over. Testimony of Joseph B. Wood Smith, he said, was sometimes as good and kind as a man could be and then at times was as ugly as a man could be. Wood followed Smith to the barn and asked him pleasantly for the key to the barn in which the wagon was locked up. The next Wood knew, Smith came at him and struck him under the left eye, knocking him down, and then kneeled on him and tried to strike him in the face several times. Wood escaped the blow by dodging, heard Alma say, Let father alone. And Smith replied, I won't. Wood asked Alma to help him. She said, I can't. He's holding me. Wood turned over and saw her lying by him with Smith's hands on her throat. She had hold of his hands. Wood undertook to get up. Then Smith hit him again in the face and lay upon him. 
Wood drew his revolver, which he had carried for years, and by a great effort, though nearly exhausted, got partly out from under Smith and fired. Did this because he was afraid Smith would kill him, and in order to get away from him. Next saw Smith following up Alma, told him to let her alone. When Smith again sprang for Wood, he fired again, thinks he hit him in the arm. Smith then said he would not touch him again, and started to go out of the barn, and there was no more firing after that. Testimony of Alma R. Smith On the first day I returned, Smith commenced to quarrel with me. On the day before the homicide, Smith told my father and myself that he was sorry and asked us to forgive him. The next morning I asked him for the team. He made no reply. He went out. I never saw him again until the affray. At that time I ran out of the house. Smith had my father down and was partly on top of him. I took him by the coat and tried to pull him off. He caught me and threw me down and said he would finish us both. Our little girl said, Ma, don't let Pa kill Grandpa. Smith took me by the throat and reached down for the revolver in my pocket. He got it partly out. I seized it, and we both had hold of it. I did not fire it. I never intended to hurt him, intended to get away the best I could. The revolver was not fired except in that struggle. In the meantime, my father was trying to get away from Smith. When the pistol went off, I was on my back. When I got away from him, he got off, went for father again. He kept hold of me, and father said, Let go of Alma. Smith said he wouldn't, and started for father. I ran to the house after the shooting. Smith started for Thompson's. Our little girl followed him. Dying Declaration of Lumen A. Smith The shooting took place at the barn outdoors. Mr. Wood, my wife's father, told me I should not have the horse. I did not say anything. Mr. Wood pulled his revolver, and I sprang for him and took him down. My wife came out and drew her revolver. I then took hold of them and had the ends of both revolvers in my hand. We then had a squabble, and I fetched her down top of him, and his head was between my legs holding him down. I had to let go of him, and they fired once or twice and did not hit me, and I kept trying to get hers away. He got up, and she said, Give it to him, father. And he shot three times at me, and she shot one ball into me while I was fussing with her. My wife shot me twice, I think. She did once anyway. My wife's father shot at me four or five times. I think she shot at me first. They were both shooting. My little girl was there, hollering, Pa, Pa. Her name is Helen. She was right there among us. She came running out when she saw I was home. Almost nothing is known for certain. The horse belonged to Lumen or to Alma. It was his to sell or it wasn't. The fight occurred inside the barn or just outside the barn doors when either Wood pulled a revolver or Lumen attacked him unprovoked. Then Alma came in with a seven-shooter, 
and Lumen wrestled her down, fumbling for the revolver, or maybe he was strangling her, hands clamped fast about her throat. The gun discharged. He reeled back, and Wood fired too. Give it to him, Alma said, or didn't say, and they shot him again. Lumen suffered gunshot wounds to the neck, abdomen, and wrist. Despite his injuries, he made it as far as Josiah Thompson's farm, crossing the bridge over Allen Brook. Wood remained in the barn, it seems, while Alma went to the house and Helen ran after her father. The distance to Thompson's was over 200 yards, and Lumen was near collapse by the time he turned in the dooryard, telling Sophia Thompson he was shot and that he was dead. A man named William Willie was present and helped Lumen into the house. Helen lingered outside, as if afraid, but Lumen turned and called to her, and she came in. The Thompsons sent for the doctor, the sheriff. Perhaps it was William who went for help, as it was around this time his brother George Willie, a livery owner, learned of the shooting at Jarrow's farm and hastened to Smith's, meeting Wood there. The old man's eye was badly blacked, Willie observed, and there was blood down the side of his face. Wood said Lumen came at him, that he'd acted in self-defense. He was quite unemotional, Willie noted, indifferent about the affray. So was Alma. She had been shooting, she told Willie, and would shoot another man if he knocked her down. Her dress was torn, Willie observed and she showed him the dirk knife Lumen was given to carry and with which he had menaced her, explaining she'd stolen it and secreted it away. News of the shooting reached Deputy E.D. Baker in Essex Junction, who drove to Thompson's without delay and found C.M. Farron in attendance at the bedside. The doctor was able to confirm what Lumen himself suspected. The wounds were mortal he would not survive. Lumen told Baker what had happened in the barn, that Alma and Wood had attacked without provocation, shooting him multiple times, whereas he didn't do anything to them except to try and get their revolvers away. The little girl, Helen, corroborated this version of events, and Lumen declared himself glad that he had lived long enough to tell his story. Baker went to the Smith farm, intending to make an arrest. He met Wood in the yard, who repeated the same story he'd told Willie. When asked why he carried a revolver, Wood explained that he'd had one for 30 years, that it was a kind of companion to him. Where is it now? Baker asked. In the house. Alma was inside too, doing the ironing. Baker doesn't mention any visible injuries though others would later testify in court to the presence of finger marks around her throat. She inquired after her husband, and Baker confirmed he was dying, that he wouldn't last the night. Alma was unmoved, saying only she hoped he might live long enough to repent. Later that same evening, interviewed at the jail, she said it was the happiest night she had had for many months for she was safe from her husband's abuse and brutality. Baker confiscated her pistol and checked the cylinder. 
Inside were three charges of shot, three shells, and one empty chamber, indicating the pistol had been fired up to three times recently. Wood fetched his pistol from another room, a 32 caliber. Baker observed one shot of six remaining, suggesting Wood may have fired the pistol up to four times, assuming he kept one chamber empty as a safety. It's known he fired at least twice, because two 32 caliber rounds were removed from Lumen's body. One had lodged in the wrist and was easily retrieved, while the second had buried itself in his abdomen. The third wound to Lumen's neck was believed to have been fired from Alma's revolver, but the bullet penetrated downward to the chest and vitals and couldn't be recovered. This third wound was probably fatal. Such was the opinion of Dr. Briggs of Burlington when he arrived at Thompson's to assist Farron. He listened to Lumen's heart and lungs and confirmed he was unlikely to recover. Lumen knew this and was resigned. To George Willie, he said, he had been shot and had got to die. He told George Austin he would never get well and asked him to look after the children. Around this time, state's attorney H.S. Peck arrived at Thompson's. Mere days before, Peck met with Lumen in his Burlington offices, and Lumen told him of Alma's alleged infidelities. What is to be done? he'd asked. And Peck had done nothing. He may have felt guilty, perhaps responsible. He took down Lumen's dying declaration, and afterward he led the state's prosecution of Alma and her father. Lumen survived the night, but his time was short. Dr. Briggs returned to Thompson's on Friday afternoon and found the injured man, stupefied with exhaustion and blood poisoning, his complexion darkening to purple. He died in the night. The body was released to Chester Smith of Heinsburg. Six years earlier, age 17, Chester had contracted smallpox while working in New York and nearly died of it. He recovered his health and settled in Heinsburg, where he farmed the old homestead and slept in the same house where his mother and brothers had died. The funeral took place on October 25th. Helen likely attended the service, and afterward it seems Chester took her in, if only for a time. As of June 1880, the census lists her as a boarder in the home of Chester Smith, though later newspaper reports describe her as a resident of the orphan's home. Her half-brother, Joseph, likewise was placed at the poor farm in Williston, while the youngest child, Bertha, was permitted to remain with Alma during her imprisonment. A year passed, or near enough to one, by the time Alma Smith and Joseph Wood stood trial together in October of 1880. Public opinion was firmly against them. From the Burlington Free Press. The entire Woods family, we are informed, have always borne a reputation little short of infamous. Some time ago, Joseph B. Woods, the probable murderer, was imprisoned in the jail in this city for selling liquor and remained there for two or three years, refusing to pay his fine. 
the wife's reputation is but little better than that of a common prostitute. She has repeatedly abandoned her husband, been an inmate of houses of ill fame, and otherwise brought scandal upon herself and upon her family. On the other hand, all the neighbors and all who knew him speak of the murdered smith as a peaceable, law-abiding man, a little weak in mind, but generally speaking, a man of upright intention and conduct. The prosecution contended that Alma and Wood had conspired together to deprive the weak-minded Lumen of his property and livelihood, and then shot him once it became apparent he intended to sell the horse. Their argument was primarily informed by Lumen's dying declaration, which was admitted to the court as evidence. His deposition described the attack in the barn and also provided a glimpse of a troubled marriage during which Alma had threatened to kill him thousands of times, and as recently as August 10th. As it was generally believed an individual wouldn't risk eternal damnation by sinning with his or her last utterance, the defense sought to undermine Lumen's deposition by showing he did not believe in a future state of existence and of rewards and punishment, but the judge didn't allow it. Other efforts failed too. Alma and Wood repeated their earlier claims that Lumen was unstable, crazy, and abusive husband. Various character witnesses were called on behalf of the defendants, including their jailer, while others described the injuries they'd received, Wood's bloodied face, the marks on Alma's throat. It wasn't enough. The jury deliberated for around eight hours before finding the defendants guilty of murder in the second degree. Alma and Wood appealed to the state Supreme Court, who issued a favorable ruling on January 1st, 1881. In their opinion, the court affirmed the special legal status of a dying declaration, but concluded there were elements of Lumen's statement that shouldn't have been admitted into evidence, including his allegations of threats and abuse by Alma. If dying declarations do not relate to the direct transactions and circumstances from which the death of the person murdered ensues, they are inadmissible. The court also determined it was inappropriate for Alma and Wood to have been tried together on the charge of murder, stating, If one inflicts a mortal wound, but before death ensues, another kills the same person by an independent act, without concert with or procurement of the first man, he who caused the first wound cannot be convicted of murder or manslaughter or assault with intent to kill on an indictment charging both jointly with murder. The guilty verdict was set aside and a new trial ordered for October 1881. Too late, as it happened. In February, the Williston farm was foreclosed on and sold, while Joseph Wood died in prison awaiting his second trial. He's buried in Williston's Morse Cemetery. Alma stood trial alone. A year had passed since she was found guilty, and the facts remained unchanged. The same witnesses were called, the same evidence presented, but this time Alma was acquitted and released. 
To the public, however, she remained a murderess. Concerning the November 1881 trial of Charles Gateau, the Burlington Clipper remarked, We don't want the twelve who tried Alma Smith as a jury for Gateau. Her whereabouts between 1881 and 1900 are unknown, though the 1900 census shows her living in Foxborough, Massachusetts, under the name of Alma Tripp. It seems she'd had another child after 1881, as she claimed six living children in her responses to the census taker. In Foxborough, she lived alone but for a lodger, and worked as a laundress, before relocating to Quincy Street in Brooklyn, where in 1905 she was employed as a general laborer. In 1910, she disappears from public records, married or dead or merely overlooked. The children didn't fare much better. Bertha Smith spent two years in jail with her mother before being released into poverty in 1881. Alma gained her freedom but lost a child as Bertha was placed immediately in the home for destitute children. Possibly mother and daughter remained in contact, however, as Bertha was living in Springfield, Massachusetts, around 90 miles from Foxborough, when she married John Worthington in 1898. Four years later, she married again, becoming Bertha Newell. But this second marriage ended in divorce and Bertha returned to Vermont. She married a third time and died in 1948. Less is known of Helen's movements. For a time, she boarded with her half-brother Chester Smith in Hinesburg and possibly spent time in the orphan's home before marrying Howard Ray at age 16. The marriage didn't last. Howard divorced Helen in 1898 on grounds of adultery, and after that there's nothing, no trace of her in the public record. First Alma, then Helen. It's so easy to disappear. The past is uncertain, at once changeless and always changing, not only unknown, but probably unknowable. A marriage splinters and falls to pieces, and the husband is either a crazed abuser or a weak-minded simpleton. His wife is a murderer and adulteress, or she is a victim a survivor of two abusive marriages. Her father is a criminal, quarrelsome and devious, or else he is a quiet man, a peacemaker wishing only to protect his daughter. In the barn that afternoon, they are all of these things, or maybe none of them, but Helen is there too, and she's only four years old. Pa, she hollers, pa. Shots are fired, and Lumen staggers toward the road, crossing to Thompson's with Helen just behind. She leaves the barn, follows him over the bridge. Thank you for listening to These Dark Mountains. Today's episode was sourced from newspapers of the period and from public records. Our music and theme are by John Mills. Episode transcripts are available at the website these dark mountains.com